Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So we need to hear the word. So what if you're a pastor or a preacher and you're giving your message and you look out and there's people sleeping? Ah, that's got to be horrifying. So we're going to talk to Scott Hubbard today. He's from DesiringGod.org. And we're going to talk about how to hear a sermon well. Scott, welcome back to the show. Yeah, it's good to be back on. Thanks for having me, Bill. Right before we went on, you said that Father's Day for you was going to be celebrated partly tonight. And it looks like your wife was serving up uh, macaroni and cheese with chicken. Yeah, that's right. Mac and cheese (laughs) with chicken. And you seem so happy. I I am happy about that. Yeah, it's dad's, uh, (laughs) probably dad's favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Uh, meal-wise yeah. that we're doing? Oh, man. Well, we do, uh, pizza's up there. Oh, yeah, good. She yeah. makes a homemade pizza. We actually have that every Friday night. So, nice. A little tradition. Uh, it's a tradition, yeah. Started with COVID and have just kept on doing it. Nice, nice. Well, let's talk about uh, how to hear a sermon well. Great. So I suppose this topic, this article that I wrote has been built up over several years. Noticing in the scriptures just how central, how important hearing is. It is the main sense of the Christian throughout both Old and New Testaments of the people of God, that to be a part of God's people, to belong to Israel in the Old Covenant, to belong to the Church of Jesus in the New Covenant, is at heart to be a person who hears. And so... You see that in Deuteronomy at the heart of the Old Covenant, what we call the Shema. uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Hear this. And other commands strewn throughout Deuteronomy. And then, of course, Jesus, he sure says it a lot. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Mm -hmm. And so much of his ministry was, uh, of course, preaching. And that required faithful, attentive hearing. And as Christians now, we're very used to going in and out of church Sunday by Sunday. I sure feel it as a pretty familiar routine. And it can be pretty easy to fall into habits of being present in body, but absent in spirit. Hearing the words on one level and that they register in your mind, but they, they don't go down into a deeper level of the heart landing with spiritual significance. So... Uh, I've experienced this mostly on the level of a hearer, but also a somewhat on the side of the preacher, too. So maybe we're a little distracted in our minds and a little bit divided in our heart. Is that yeah. what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, you're reading what I've written here. That's exactly right. I mean, you don't have to be anybody special to go to church and find yourself distracted. I mean, you don't have to have a, a remarkably busy life. You don't have to be a young parent like I am uh, and feel it in a significant or special way. All of us have 
things that come to mind while we're sitting there under the sermon. You know, one moment we're focusing on, on the passage, and the next moment we're focusing on lunch or focusing on something that's coming the next day at work or at school or whatever it might be. And, of course, we could get into the broader conversation of how uh, the digital habits that many of us have are, mm-hmm. are tutoring us in the art of distraction, which isn't helping. But this is not a digital problem. It's always been around the need to focus on God's Word and the danger of being distracted from it by mm-hmm. all sorts of other things. When you focus on hearing, there, when Jesus was teaching and preaching, people didn't have copies of the Bible in their homes. No, they didn't. They had to listen. They had to listen. That's they had right. to hear and 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 then take it in. Yeah, and so you read or recited a little earlier Romans ten seventeen. Yeah. Faith comes from hearing, and I mean one of the reasons that is is because very few people would have been reading, <laughs> so they would have heard the words of Christ. Mm-hmm. Those they would have come across them for the first time in a local church setting, perhaps where they would have heard part of the gospels read out loud, or heard one of the letters of Paul read out loud, or they would have heard from somebody a missionary or a neighbor, the gospel of Christ by by hearing. And of course, like we talked about just a minute ago, Jesus's ministry was a ministry of preaching. Yes, he he worked miracles, but to the end that people would hang on his words with spiritual attentiveness. They would pay attention not only to what he's doing, but to what he is saying about himself, about the kingdom of God. And, uh, one of the most famous parables that he gave, of course, is the parable of the sower or the parable of the four soils, mm-hmm. which is so much about about hearing. How do you how do you hear this word, and how you hear ultimately determines what kind of fruit the word produces in your life. I like this now, Scott. Let's talk more about this because you say if the word of God is seed and our hearts are soil, then our aim would be before the gathering is to till it up, break it up. Yeah, that's right. The image of seed and soil is right there in the parable of the sower. And so in this article that you're, you're referring to, just use that common imagery of seed and soil to talk about our responsibility. And so many of us come to Sunday morning, we come underneath God's preached word with hearts that are not ready, soil that is not ready. And so I think part of us, many of us, I often come into church thinking that that, that's the goal. The goal is to be there. The goal is to come and to hear God's word. But uh, so often that goal is thwarted by the way that we spent the hours before we go, the way that we spent the evening before we go, such that we come in tired, we come in distracted, we come in not ready to hear God's word, not uh, as we would come if we really thought in the morning beforehand and the evening beforehand, when, when I go to gather with God's people tomorrow, I go to hear God. <laughs> I go to hear God. So many of us often, and part of it is the routine of it all, but we, we go in and, and sit underneath the word and, and our minds kind of go here and there and, and uh, we act as if we're not hearing the living God speak to us. And the fight to do that often happens before we enter the church building at all. So till the soil, as you were saying there. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point you make in terms of what were we doing the night before, what were we doing a couple of hours before, just to be in a place where our, our hearts are open to hear the Word of God taught 
and preached and to be able to receive it and not be allowed to let your mind go into distractions. Yeah, that's right. So I think that we have the paradigm, many of us, that how we hear the Word of God will change how we live, and that's true. When the Word of God lands on us through our hearing with power, we go out as people who are changed. But the reverse, in a way, is also true. How you live determines how you're going to hear. So if we walk into our Sunday gatherings having slept six hours, five hours the night before, having had our minds packed with distractions the moment we walk up, walk through the door, then chances are, unless God breaks through in an unusual way into our hearts, we're not going to hear the Word of God very well. (laughs) And so part of this is learning to see the Sunday gathering in a different way than perhaps many of us have. I note in here that for many Christians in the past, Sunday was the greatest day of the week. They treated it that way. Mm -hmm. The week is going to climax in Sunday. And the climax of Sunday was corporate worship. So the Puritans had a way of calling Sunday the market day for the soul. Uh, At that time, there would often be something called market days where there was a particular day of the week where you would go to market and you'd gather up your groceries, you'd gather up other goods. You didn't do that every day or intermittently throughout the week. You went and did it one day. And they referred to Sunday that way in a spiritual way. Sunday is the market day for the soul. It's the day you go and you gather up a week's worth of spiritual goods to take in with you Monday through Saturday. Not that there isn't going to be fresh sustenance from God in daily Bible reading or things like that, but they saw the Lord's Day, Sunday, as a day in which God met his people with particular power. And so they shaped their week in light of that, and they prepared for Sunday in light of that. And the battle often began the night before and even prior to that. So they walked into Sunday gathering, the Sunday gathering, with hearts that were tilled ready to receive the Word of God as seed. I love that imagery. It's so, I'm longing for that because we're probably, I'm not there, right? Yeah, and I'm not either. I wrote this article in part to help me because of how often I find myself distracted and taking the Word of God coming to me on Sundays for granted and not valuing the sermons that my pastors are preaching as much as I ought, that really God is speaking to me through my pastors. Yeah. And so this was, this was written for me, and I, I think it is, though, a, a pervasive issue. Uh, not many people think of Sundays the way that the Puritans, as I just described it, do. Uh, we, we do, it seems, many of us in our Western Christian context, uh, treat the Sunday gathering with a, a kind of casualness that does not often serve a kind of rigorous hearing and responding to the Word of God as if, like someone who goes to that market day, as if we're going to church expecting that we're going to walk away with something really good from God, Mm -hmm. really helpful for this upcoming week, something that we cannot do without, that if we didn't have it, we would be spiritually impoverished, as if we forgot to get our groceries for the week and the stores were closed the rest of the week. Like, we're going to feel that, and we should feel it spiritually. And I I need this. I need this week by week to remember what, what we are doing 
is going to hear God so that he can serve us for the week ahead. Well, you think of Christians gathering a week's worth of spiritual goods on Sunday. We don't have to do that as much anymore because we can go home and listen to 2,000 sermons online, uh, you know, if yeah. we wanted to. Yeah. They're all there and available for us. If we want more spiritual food, it's there at a click of a button. There is a different dynamic now for sure. that we have the digital component. And yet, there is something irreplaceable about the gathering, physical, local gathering of believers. I agree. Uh, You know, there's something that happens there when God's people come into contact, into proximity with one another, to hear not just a word preached to a different church of Christians, but a word preached to them by somebody who knows them, Mm -hmm. by somebody who cares deeply for their soul in particular. And so as as we think about hearing the sermon well, we could also expand beyond that to just talk about all the other things that are happening in a Sunday gathering. Yeah, let's, let's do that after the break. Yeah, sure. That Scott, sounds great. Scott Hubbard is my guest. He's a writer over at DesiringGod.org. You can head over to DesiringGod.org, type in his name and all kinds of articles will pop up. We'll be right back. graduate of Bethlehem College and Seminary, and an editor for DesiringGod.org. He lives right here in Minneapolis, and we're um, chatting about how to listen well, how to hear a sermon well. And of course, there's more than just the message, isn't there, Scott? Yeah, there is. Corporate gathering. This gets to the vitality or the uh, how crucial it is to meet in person with a body of believers whenever possible. So, of course, we know from this past year and a half that it's not always possible. <laughs> and yet, whenever it is possible, we see that we see this in a text like Hebrews 10, which is a familiar one. And yet someone pointed out to me recently uh, a connection that I hadn't quite seen before. So, so we know that we ought not to neglect meeting together, the writer says, as is the habit of some, but to encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so the uh, call to encourage one another depends on the meeting together. Don't neglect to meet together, but encourage one another. (laughs) And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So how are we going to encourage one another? There's a vital aspect of it. And he's talking Christian to Christian there, not necessarily preacher to congregation, but Christian to Christian, encourage one another. That can't happen if we're listening only to a podcast preacher or sermons from, a, from, from elsewhere. Nor are we going to get the benefit of the songs that we sing in the same way or of the Lord's Supper, which is another way that God speaks to us. One of the vital ways that he speaks to us alongside the word is in the ordinance or the sacrament. And so those are, those are also matters of listening well to our brothers and sisters to the songs that we sing, to the supper. What about the mentality that some have when they walk into church saying, what do you got for me today? I'm a consumer. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. I want a good message. And, you know, we've been talking a lot so far about the hours, minutes prior yeah. to the sermon. <laughs> and the hours and the minutes after the sermon are also worth talking about. And that gets into, I mean, you're, you're talking somewhat on the front end of the sermon. But one thing that has been reorienting when it comes to a consumer mindset for me to think about is there's a, uh, a quote from a pastor. He says that when the sermon is preached, the responsibility of stewardship shifts from the preacher to the hearer. So we often think of stewardship as something that preachers have. They are entrusted with the word of God and they need to be found faithful. And yet, at the same time, those who receive the word of God also now have become stewards. And the responsibility of a steward, whether you are a preacher or a hearer, is to respond to the word of God, or as James says, to become a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And so I think we fall into the mindset of a consumer, whether consciously or not, we are thinking of the preacher as the one who is the steward of God, the one who will be evaluated by God according to how faithful he's been. But once that word comes to us, all of a sudden now we are stewards. We've received the word. We are no longer the ones observing the word preached, but we're the ones observed by God and observed according to how well or how we respond to his word, whether in faith and repentance or not. And so, uh, I think that kind of mindset puts to death the idea of a merely consumer mindset of, of what, what do you have to give to me today? Mm-hmm. And there, there's, there's more that could be said there too. But mm-hmm. Scott, how many great sermons do you think you have cataloged in your brain? Well, I mean, depends once, on once what you've you heard by once, cataloged. Well, <laughs> once you've heard where a, a subject comes up or a passage comes up in scripture and, and you think to yourself, oh, I heard a awesome sermon on that passage. Yeah. And you start to fill in all the details because you you heard the word. Yeah. And it got into your head and into your heart. And now as a steward of the word, you can have a conversation with somebody where you're giving them some pretty solid biblical information. Yeah. You know, that happens. Uh, and it's a glorious thing when it happens. But my own sense is that the transformation that God intends for us in his word is not primarily a matter of remembering everything that a great sermon said, but instead uh, having an encounter with God, often in the very moment of the sermon where as we are listening, as we are hearing, perhaps even a familiar passage, the Holy Spirit does his work of uncovering to our eyes the glory of Christ. In that moment, appetites for sinful things are changed, appetites for God are awakened, and then the effects of that don't always depend on having a point-by-point outline of the sermon. Mm-hmm. So you're saying, you know, how many great sermons do I remember? Well, topically, you know, I, I, I can think of, oh, yeah, I, that was a great sermon, that was a great sermon. But my own sense is that probably the most lasting work of God often in my soul has happened by things that I no longer remember. <laughs> and so the main, the main point of... Uh, hearing the word of God or of stewarding well the word of God is not is not always to remember it, but to be as faithful as we can with as much as we've heard. And so there's a great image from an old pastor who uh, talks about two men who go and they, they find a fruit tree and one of them 
he fills his pockets with as much fruit as he can carry home with him, and the other one takes the tree. And the image there is that one person, uh, the person who took all the fruit, is like the person who remembers all the facts of the sermon and enjoy, enjoys it for a moment. The other person is the one who internalizes the word, plants the word down deep into his soul through faithful, believing, hearing, and repentant obedience. And then even if that person doesn't remember as much as the first person, nevertheless, a principle of obedience and of trust in God has been worked into that person's soul that's going to lead probably in more lasting fruit. Mm -hmm. You hear all the time, people leave church and they say, I felt like he was talking directly to me. And that's that moment, that experience with God in the context of the sermon that person has that that awakening yeah and and those are those are precious moments aren't they they sure are yeah and i want those to happen more often and my my sense is that of course god is a sovereign god and he breaks in as he pleases to speak to his people to unstop our ears but my my sense is that if uh by his grace, with his help, we were more faithful beforehand during the sermon and after in striving to hear his word that those kinds of moments would happen more often. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to hear a sermon well, Scott, in in summary, as we wrap up here, again, let's touch on some of the points that we can focus on. Great. So I think the most helpful way to think about this is to break it down into before the sermon, during the sermon, and after the sermon. So all of those are points at which we can strive to hear a sermon well. Before the sermon, we've talked about some. On the one hand, try to remove the things that come in the way of hearing. Things like tiredness, coming into the gathering tired, coming in late, coming in distracted. We can't always control those things, but often we can. And then also before the sermon, just generating a sense of expectation (laughs) that God has good things for me here. Even if on the face of it, the passage or the focus of the preacher doesn't seem to be directly relevant, that this is for me and God is speaking. Second, during the sermon, cultivate the habit of active listening. So there's more than one way to listen, just as there's more than one way to read. You know, we can go through a book uh, just kind of casually, or we can go through with a pencil, underlining, Mm -hmm. jotting down things. There's a way to listen like that, too. There's a way to hear the word and to do it with uh, diligence and with an active will. So that's the the during piece. And then after, we've talked about as seeing yourself as a steward of the word, not merely as a consumer, not merely as a hearer, but as a steward who's going to be evaluated based on how you respond. Mm -hmm. Really nice. Thank you so much, Scott, for sharing all this with us. Yeah, well, glad to be here. Great to have you in the studio. Scott Hubbard's been my guest. He is over at DesiringGod.org. Go check it out. We'll take a short break and be right back. And just get happy You better chase all your cares away Sing hallelujah, come on, get happy Get ready for the judgment day The sun is shining, come on, get happy The Lord is waiting to take your hand Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy We're going to the promised land We're heading across the river wide. 
Thanks again to Scott Hubbard, and I loved his message on how to hear a sermon well, and I think again of Romans ten seventeen, faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, so I love hearing the Word of God, and the pastor that preaches it loud and clear is Brent Kuhlman. He is the uh, pastor at Trinity, Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska, and he's a semi-regular guest on the show. Brent, welcome back. Thank you, Bill. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. You know, a passage I've been so enjoying studying lately comes out of Mark chapter 4, and it just so happens that you've done some thinking on this passage as well. It starts in verse 35, and this is a powerful passage, and I want to talk about it today. I'm glad you want to, because it is. It's, I, I say it's a delicious passage. <laughs> <laughs> I love that word. Especially it's right around dinner. delicious, yeah. Uh, yeah, especially around dinner. Because uh, Mark, of course, like all the evangelists, are, are preaching Jesus, as you gave the intro, so that uh, uh, there will be faith in us, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So all these stories, of course, are to repent us of our sins, are not trusting in Jesus like we should, and then faithing us in Jesus Uh, for the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life or salvation, if you will. And that's what this story is all about, because, I mean, check this out. Um, If you you ask, what in the world is Jesus up to in this text? Well, that's precisely it. He's going to repent his disciples and faith them and him all the more. And so if we check this story out, you know, it's evening, and then Jesus says, let's go across to the other side. This would be the the lake, the the sea. And, uh, you know, in the evening, you don't do that. Even fishermen don't do that very often. Uh, because that's dangerous, you know. Um, it, some would say that's irresponsible. Um, because when you get on, on the sea or the lake, you know, at night, there can be all kinds of bad weather, the wind, waves, you know. And the but, darkness. Uh, when Jesus, yeah, and the darkness, exactly. And, and, but nonetheless, when Jesus says, let's go to the other side, you know, okay, well, we'll get in the boat, we'll go. And the text says that there's other boats with him as well. But that's all it says about the other boats. Uh, but then, you know, it's... I want to repeat this uh, theme that I just I mentioned, you know, because you might say, what's the Lord up to? Doing something that normally people wouldn't do, getting on a boat, going across the sea at night. Um, again, it's so that they'll learn to trust in him all the more. And this is what we're going to learn from the text today. Um, so off they go, you know, off they go. And if you check it out, <clears throat> where is Jesus on the boat? Well, he's in the back, and they put him on the cushion. I would contend. <laughs> I would contend because you know these guys are fishermen. They're the pros. You know, they're the bass pro fishermen, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, to use our, our language of today. And so let's get Jesus out of the way, and and we'll we'll we, we fishermen we'll get the boat across the sea, and we'll pilot it, and and we'll steer, and we'll go ahead and set the sails. We'll, like they're in charge. <laughs> and lo and behold, um, the windstorm breaks open. It's, that's verse 37, and the waves, they break into the boat, and the boat is filling with water. Well, I'll, you know, that's, that's trouble. You know, it's, it's night, windstorm, um, a small boat on a really big uh, sea or lake, 
And uh, there's no doubt that the disciples here are very, very nervous because they know what it's like to be on the sea, not only during the day, but also at the night. Because I I would contend that in their career as fishermen, they probably had a lot of near misses themselves. And they probably had uh, lost some friends at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee as well due to these storms. So... What I, what I like to do with this text is I like to ask the question here at this point. So, you know, it's easy to trust Jesus uh, when the water is calm, or to put it another way, when everything's right with your life. You know, everything's going just the way you planned, right? No wind, no waves, no water <laughs> coming to your boat. Yeah, you no, furry, no furious squall. Exactly. It's, it's, it, my point again is it's easy to trust Jesus when your life is going just as you planned. And then all of a sudden— I'd like to meet text, that person, by the way, Brent. <laughs> well, and and it doesn't go as planned, right? And and so it, they're sinking like the Titanic, and so you know if you're going to look for help, you look to Jesus, and lo and behold, in verse thirty-eight, he's in the stern, and he's asleep on the cushion. Now I love this; he's sleeping as if he doesn't even know what's going on, you know. And so the disciples, they, they have to essentially shake him by the shoulders, if you will. The text doesn't say shake him by the shoulders, but they woke him up. But they probably yelled at him probably pretty sternly, you know, like all hands on deck, Jesus. Come on, let's go. Um, we're going to drown here. Boat's going to go under if you don't do something. And then the real interesting que- question they asked him in verse 38, you know, teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? Or to put it in very uh, frank terms, don't you care that we're going to die? And that's what a lot of people ask these days to Jesus, don't they? Mm-hmm. Brent, I'm looking at the start of this, verse 35. Uh, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. He didn't say, let's go out into the middle of the lake and die. That's right. That's right. And and so the, they assume they're going to make it. But then all of a sudden the windstorm breaks, oh, breaks out. And now can you trust this kind of Jesus, who's asleep on the cushion and doesn't seem to care. And I think that's their question. Don't you care? Like everybody asks Jesus when uh, things don't go well in their life or when things happen that don't go as planned. And the answer is this. I mean, my pastoral answer to the question is, of course, Jesus cares. And proof of that. This is no joke, Bill, because pastors who deal with people in crisis, they will ask me, doesn't God care? And the answer, of course, yes, he does. Well, why didn't he do anything? And I'll say, well, he did. Jesus came down from heaven. Good grief. God loves you so much. He cares so much for you that God the Father sent his only begotten son to this earth, taking on flesh uh, in, in the world in which we are perishing in our sin and uh, drowning in our death, if you will, um, the, the heavy millstone of the law, it's tied around our necks, necks and it's, it's, it's pulling us, uh, I would contend, you know, the law's accusations and damnation against us because of our sins. It's pulling us, pulling us into, the, into the hellish or hellacious deep, mm-hmm. if you will, to use this language. So my point is, as a pastor from this text, is, yeah, Jesus does care. And he, he cares so much that he went all the way to do a Good Friday dying on the cross where he... And then I like to use the same language of Mark 4. On the cross, Jesus did what? Just like he does in Mark 4 here, he slept. On the cross, he slumbered in death, if you will. 
And he did that because he was bearing all of the sin of the world in his body, and he <laughs> atoned for it all in his death and in his blood. <laughs> I just couldn't help myself when I, when I speak about this text. He's sleeping on the boat. He sleeps on the cross. Can you trust in Jesus like that? I'm here to tell you, yes, you can. So let's, let's not pretend. Let's not uh, doubt. Let's, uh, let's make, make, make no mistake about it. Jesus cares for you. I mean, he who put everything in its place. Remember Job in Job 38, when God had this conversation with Job, and God essentially asked, you know, Job, okay, since you know everything, I'm paraphrasing now, <laughs> since you seem to know everything, where were you when I put everything in its proper place? You know, when I told the sea this far and no further, and of course, Job would have had to say, well, <laughs> I wasn't there. You, you did. And this is the same Jesus who put everything in its place, including the sea and the dry land and everything. Uh, to, to quote uh, the man who died just recently, Rush Limbaugh, you know, when he would uh, talk, Jesus could calm the storm in his sleep with one hand tied around his back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if he wants to or if he doesn't want to. And I think that's a very important point. He does what he wills. And so he allows the storm to take place. He sleeps and he's going to test you. Do you trust me? He goes to the cross and he dies. He slumbers in death, the atoning death of his Good Friday dying. He says, will you trust me? Can you trust me in that? And the answer, of course, is yes. Jesus cares so much for us that he died on the cross for us. So Jesus, aren't you going to do something? The disciples essentially ask him on the boat. Because if you cared, you'd do something. I mean, you wouldn't sleep at a time of this crisis, would you? <laughs> and that's what a lot of people ask. And the pastoral care here for, for people is Jesus does care. He does care. I've encountered this again. I'm going to backtrack a little bit. I've encountered this a ton with people that I care for as a pastor. When they say to me, you know, pastor, I, I've prayed this a million times to God. Don't you care? Um, you know, if he cares, he wouldn't let this bad thing or this thing that I didn't plan happen to me. You know, I, uh, people that I deal with say, I want Jesus to fix my life and I want him to fix it now. I want him to make all the hard times and hard events and difficult times in my life. I want them to just go away, and I want them to never happen to me again. And what I'm talking about here, Bill, is this. It's like people get a, they get a cancer or um, a disease, you know, COVID here lately. Or in our congregation recently, it was a man who was killed in a motorcycle on the interstate just last week. Um, we encountered death in the grave all the time. And, and you know, recently we have a man in our congregation who got a, a diagnosis, and the doctor says, you have pancreatic cancer. There's nothing more I can do for you. And it's at that point in people's lives that they, they essentially say to me, I want to go take Jesus off the throne in heaven and shake him and tell him, why don't you wake up and pay attention to me? Don't you care that we or that I am going to die? And I tell them, yeah, he does care. He does care. He cares enough that he laid down his life on the cross to save you. And then on the third day, to rise from the dead as the first fruits of them that sleep. And that means that you too, you too will rise bodily from the dead and have eternal life with Christ. And that's where Jesus always wants to take us in these stories. And that's why they're recorded by the evangelists. Mm -hmm. I always wondered if Jesus was thinking to himself when he was on the boat, do you think that this boat is going down? 
the Son of God is on it. <laughs> you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell a... Um, let's just hypothetically run with that, okay? All right. Uh, are you familiar with a, a theologian who died oh, a few years ago named Robert Farrar Capon? I don't know that name. Oh, he wrote, he wrote a book that I read. It's been years ago, but in the introduction of the book, he, he, gave, he told a story about this, and it goes like this. Pretend you're at the beach. And you, you got your camera out and you're, you're videotaping what's happening at the beach. And all of a sudden you see a little girl flailing around out in the surf and she's drowning. And everybody's horrified. And the lifeguard sees this little girl out in the surf drowning. And he gets off his chair and he hustles out, dives into the sea and reaches her. And everybody's just you know, expecting that he's going to bring her back to the shore, give her mouth to mouth, and she's going to live. And the opposite happens. They both go under. And everyone's just horrified. They both go under the water, and they don't come back up. And then all of a sudden, you who are recording this on video, all of a sudden, the video, the, the, your recording goes to the, to the seat of the lifeguard, the lifeguard chair. And there's a note that the lifeguard left on the chair, and it says this. She's all right. She's safe in my death. <laughs> Oh, that's powerful. Mm-hmm. See, so can, can you trust a Jesus who even takes you into his death? Let's not forget that the Scripture teaches that. Second uh, Corinthians 5 says that when Christ died, all died. And then Paul teaches in Romans 6 that we were buried with Christ through baptism into his death. Now, the point I'm making here is that we, the big death is already behind us, isn't it? That we died with Christ on the cross, Second Corinthians 5. When he died, all died. That's what it says. And then in baptism, we were buried with him through baptism into his death, the big death we've already encountered. So we've already gone under, if you will, with our Lord Jesus Christ into the depths. And we're safe even in his death. See, this this is the point. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And Paul, of course, remember Romans summarizes the entire Old Testament in Romans chapter 1 when he quotes the prophet Habakkuk and says that the justified lives by faith. Faith in a sleeping Jesus on the sea, faith in a sleeping Jesus on the cross. You're safe in his death. And Bill, this is, this, it takes faith to say this and to believe this, you know, to trust that a, a sleeping Jesus on a boat or the sleeping Jesus in death on the cross can save you. Mm-hmm. I love that they were afraid of the storm, but then when Jesus calmed the waves, they were more afraid. Who is this person? Exactly. Uh, in, in the Greek, in this, in this story, uh, it says that they feared a great fear, literal translation there, feared a great fear. So the point is this, is that for a while there, they fear what? They fear the wind and the waves and the storm. And death, if you will, for that matter, okay? Mm-hmm. And so Jesus, Jesus wants to redirect their fear. <laughs> and so, you know, he, he opens a sleepy eye, if you will. He looks around at the wind, the waves, the water, and these uh, soaking wet, <laughs> frightened disciples. And he tells, he tells the wind and the waves, literally in the Greek, it's be muzzled. It's the same verb that he uses in Mark to silence the demon earlier in Mark, okay? Or be still uh, as it's translated in the English, with one little word, be muzzled, in the Greek. It's one word in Greek. Everything's calm. The storm is still. And that's when the disciples are f- afraid now of who? They fear the Lord Jesus. And this is, this is the whole point here as well, Bill. 
is we are to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And that's what Jesus is up to here. He's, he's, he's going to take their fear away from nature and then turn it toward him. In other words, he's, he, he's essentially asking all of us and his disciples, why in the world are you so afraid? What's, what's your problem? Why are you so afraid? Why do you live such small and fearful lives? Um, or to put it this way, as I did in a, a sermon here recently on this text, why do you act as though a sleeping Jesus is a useless one or an invisible Jesus as an absent Jesus? The point is, is that if, if Jesus single-handedly conquered sin, death, and hell by dying on the cross, don't you think he has everything else covered? And of course he does. And so he's drawing their fear now to himself. So as they were once afraid of the power of nature, now their fear is directed toward him. They feared a great mm. fear. Trust, fear, love, and trust in Jesus above all things now. I love that. Pastor Brent Kuhlman is my guest. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back with more. Pastor Brent Kuhlman, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. And I was just looking at the text again. We're in the uh, great passage of uh, Mark chapter 4, when Jesus calms the storm, and he gets up and rebukes the wind and, and says to the waves, quiet, be still. Then he says to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And I sometimes wonder, does he address their fears Absolutely, he does. Oh, good. Tell me more. <laughs> well, you'll notice, too, that they at the beginning they say teacher. They address him as teacher in verse 38. Um, one of the themes in Mark's gospel is, is that the people who should know who he is don't. And then you have these people who come out of the woodwork, and they know who he is. Um, for example, at Mark, Mark's gospel begins by saying that this is, a, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And you don't, get the, you don't get the confession of who, who that Jesus is until Mark 15, when Jesus dies on the cross. And who, who, who makes that same confession that Mark made, Mark 1-1, a centurion? Truly, this was the, the Son of God. Notice the, the centurion didn't say teacher. He said Son of God. Jesus is moving them to, to fear, love, and trust in him above all, above all things, so that eventually they'll move from teacher to Son of God. And that's, what, that's why he addresses this. Be still, he says to the wind and the waves, and everything is calm. There's only one, one person in the world who can do that. Yeah. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the eternal Son of God, the Messiah of Israel. Uh, as I like to say, the creative double, capital W word, uh, borrowing from John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1, 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's who this Jesus is. So he addresses their fear so that they'll fear in him and trust in him alone as the one true God, the Savior of the entire world, because no one else can do what happened here on the sea. 
I mean, seriously, I can go out on the lake and I can speak to the wind and the waves. They won't obey me. Mm. <laughs> Despite what people joke <laughs> in the communities, can't you do something about the weather, Reverend? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I can pray and ask God for help, but, but I can't command the weather to do what I want. But this Jesus can because he is God in the flesh. There's only one like him, and he happens to be the one in whom we believe. He is the one in whom we are baptized. And the point I'm trying to make, and not very well, have mercy on me, is he wants your fear. Um, let's put it this way. Well, what in the world? I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm asking this to the listeners right now. What is it that causes your heart to just go like crazy and race all the time? What is it that keeps you up at night? What is it? that causes you tons to fear. Well, Jesus wants that fear. So don't fear the wind. Don't fear the storm. Don't fear the, a tumor. Don't fear a bullet. Don't fear a burst blood vessel. And I'm here to tell you, don't even fear the grave and death itself. Fear Jesus, the Son of God, because he swallows up all your fear. So who is greater than the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I think you know the answer to that. There's nobody. Mm-hmm. And again, this calls, and so the point of the text is to the disciples then are led to repentance, and so are we. Uh, a change of mind, if you will, because metanoia in the Greek is repentance. Metanoia, that means a change of mind. So in the text here, we have a new way of looking at things, don't we? <laughs> yes, Turning we do. from fear to faith. <laughs> yeah. So my point is this, is this whole change of mind, this repentance, if you will, moving towards faith, is this same Jesus, the Word in the flesh, that stills the storm here in Mark 4 is the same word in the flesh that tells you every Sunday when you go to church, your sins are forgiven. I died for you. I rose for you. Salvation is yours. He makes that promise to us every time we go to church when the pastor faithfully preaches the gospel. That same Jesus who said, be quiet, and everything was calm on the lake. That same Jesus says, your sin is forgiven. And when he says it, it is. His word does, and it gives what it says. And so that, then, that moves us from fearing other things than Jesus, and then giving him our fear, and then learning to trust him all the more, to believe that we're safe. We're all safe in the Lord Jesus Christ, safer than you can ever imagine. And that means, you know, you're, you're safe in this life, and as a pastor, I always like to say, you know what, folks? You're even safe with Jesus even when you die. Yep, that's right. You heard me right. That's right. Even when you die. You know, Brett, when people are not Christians and they're asking about God and they're questioning God, usually the two things that pop up are, is he good and can he be trusted? The answer to both questions are yes. Yeah. <laughs> and mm-hmm. the, the thing about it is, that, you know, here's the, to, to expand on, is he good? They always ask that question in terms when things go wrong in their life. Right. Why would a good God allow such a bad thing to happen? That's like Job questioning God. And that's, again, Job 38, when God says, why don't you, why don't you pull up your pants, man, and uh, tighten your belt? Where were you when I created the earth? In other words, don't put me on trial. See, that's a dangerous thing. Never put God on trial. Never do that. So don't say, well, if, if you're so good, why did you allow this evil to happen in my life? Don't ever do that. Don't ever put God on trial. God has justified himself. Read, I think it's Psalm 32. I'm doing this off the top of my head. 
and Paul quotes it in Romans, that God justifies himself through his word or through his words. Check that out, folks. And so he gives a word in the flesh, and then that word is preached, namely the gospel. So God is good. How do you know that? Because the the eternal word took on flesh, died on the cross, and rose from the dead. That same Jesus comes to us every Sunday and gives us the gospel. And there you know that he is good. He speaks it in his word. So don't ever doubt that. And secondly, can can he be trusted? Of course he can. Because what he said, he did. He said, I would suffer, I will die, and I will rise again on the third day. And he did it. That's why I trust in him. I'll tell you that. Mm-hmm. Let me put it to you negatively. If, if the bones of our Lord Jesus Christ are, fo- are found in a grave in Palestine someday, guess what? I'm done with this pastor gig because I know that Christianity it is fraud. But guess what? His bones have never been found. Why not? Because he rose bodily from the dead just like he said he would. And he can be trusted. There were eyewitnesses that saw him ro- risen from the dead. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. So can he be trusted? Yes, he makes promises, and he's good with his promises. And that's how a Christian lives. They always trust God's promise in his word. Great. You're such a delight. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Peace be with you and all your family. Peace be with you. Amen. Yep. Brent Kuhlman has been my guest. He's the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. That is our show for the day. I'm already excited about the show tomorrow. Rob Bluey will be joining me, as well as uh, Jeff Verdorn. He's coming on to talk about uh, another end times related topic, which I'm excited about uh, as well. I hope you have a great night. I'm looking forward uh, to seeing you tomorrow. Have a good night. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.